From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. With me here in New York is Imogen Rose-Smith, an investment fellow with the University of California. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm good. It's good to be with you in the office for a change. It's good to be with you actually in person. And joining us from the world headquarters of Impact Alpha in the San Francisco Bay Area is editor and CEO David Bank. Hi, David. Hey, Brian. Hi, Imogen. Today, we're going to talk about the relationship between nationalism, globalism, populism, and impact investing, which sounds like everyone's worst Thanksgiving dinner. David, in a recent article, you, along with Impact Alpha's Dennis Price, collected comments from Impact Alpha readers. And bear with me as I quote yourself to yourself. Here's how you introduce the piece. The scenes at the U.S.-Mexican border, the waves of migration into Europe, the prospect of a trade war, and the accelerating climate disruption make clear there is no ducking global issues. The choices we have are in how we respond, open, connected, and abundant, or closed, divided, and driven by scarcity and fear. So David, what did Impact Alpha readers have to say about this? And what is the urgency at this moment for those in impact investing to address globalism? Well, it was interesting. We, we put out the call and we got a b- bunch of good responses. We printed half a dozen of them on the first day. And um, I, I guess three things struck out. One, everybody embraced the term globalist, which, you know, has been bandied about as almost like a political smear. It's like worse than being a liberal or something, um, as well as, you know, an actual, you know, cr- critique of, of, of globalization, let's say. Um, but everybody was unabashedly globalist. Now, maybe it was selection bias because they were mostly working globally on global issues. Anyway, everybody was down for being a globalist. Um, the second was this kind of optimism. And in fact, frankly, one of the reasons we put the call out was kind of, you know, we were, <laughs> we were getting a little tired in, the, in, in this optimism. But these people were relentlessly optimism. I mean, Lisa Curtis at, at Cooley Cooley, they source moringa flour, which is kind of a superfood um, that grows in a lot of places in Africa and elsewhere. Um, and she says, I believe in harnessing the power of our interconnected world to create a cultural richness and economic development that drives humanity forward. And, and they were all sort of in that in that ilk. And then the third was a kind of personal identity or personal commitment. It's kind of like who you are. Like, like people just wanted to feel, especially in this moment in, you know, in, in U.S. history now, where there's so much sort of vitriol and division and hatred and kind of closedness. They wanted to feel kind of open and part of the solution and connected and in some kind of global community. So it was kind of, um, you know, it's sort of antidote to some of the um, the, the headlines of, of the moment. So uh, we're going to keep uh, sort of hammering it. And the reason why we were interested in it is just because we think there is kind of a, a global agenda, let's say, you know, a global platform. We can get into what that means. But um, uh, it seems to be kind of a little bit on the run right now. So we wanted to see, well, what's the support for that? Now, Imogen, uh, this is the part of the podcast where you usually explain uh, why David is wrong. Uh, <laughs> David gives his uh, wide-eyed optimism uh, take, optimistic take, and you, you come out with your lovable curmudgeonly take. Uh, so why is David wrong? So <laughs> I'm glad I'm still a lovable curmudgeon and not just a curmudgeon. <laughs> you know, of course, David is the, the whole impact. There is another option. Movement is <laughs> if you're stumped, <laughs> David could be right. If you're stumped, <laughs> <laughs> um, so clearly, impact investing by almost by definition and sort of by conception is very much steeped in the globalization project. 
right? That it 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 lives in a in a world that very much thinks about things globally, and that we are all citizens of that world. And what can we do? And what tools can we bring to bear to make that world better for everyone? And that we need we can't just sit there. We can't be isolationist, right? We can't just sit there and sit in you know our wealthy apartment or our wealthy corporation or our wealthy country or whatever it is and and not look out for others and understand that there is an interconnectivity between the wealth and prosperity of some and the inequality of others and that by having you know a global economy and a global community we will all benefit like that that is that is embedded into sort of the DNA of what impact investing is so it's hardly a surprise that you know the audience that David was reaching out to came out with the answers that they did I think the problem with I, I think that's the beginning of the conversation but it doesn't it doesn't explain it doesn't start to tackle the anxiety and the issues that have caused where we are today and it kind of to to, to present impact as somehow separate from you know the, the the mass social uprisings and issues that we're seeing in the US right now or in the U in Europe or elsewhere is to kind of miss the point right and there is a paternalism in sort of impact in a lot of the dialogue around globalism that that is you know condescending and alienating to in large part, the very people we try to help. To me, that's the biggest problem. The, the, the equation that I want to get clear, and, and Imogen was going right at it, which is there is a critique of globalization. There is a critique of unrestrained free trade. There is a critique of unrestrained free flow of capital. There is a critique of, of they haven't really much had it, but there is obviously a critique of free flow of people, of labor and, and, and human beings across borders. So uh, over the last 20, 30 years, as globalization has sort of, you know, flourished or blossomed, you know, those critiques have been on point about lost jobs and dislocated communities and exploited environments. And so a response to that exploitive globalization absolutely is in order. What my point was, the response need not only be close borders, close trade, close down. The response could be fix those problems and make these forces, these driving motor forces of growth and prosperity work for people. So drive a more inclusive globalization, drive a more sustainable globalization that actually harnesses, you know, technology and innovation, everything to solve global challenges like climate change. So the point is, we don't have to just decide between are we globalist or are we nationalist? We're, what kind of globalists are we is, the, is I think, the, the question before us. And that's where I agree with you. But I think the where it breaks down in terms of is in terms of how those those tools are applied and how are we going how how are investors people whoever they are going about applying those tools to really the communities who and oftentimes are most impacted by globalism and that's where i feel like and that's where i feel like the dialogue and partners broken down and instead you know there's a sort of a trust me sense that this will this will be better for you in the long term therefore you should just suck it up and go with the flow and or you should you know ascribe to whatever it is that impact investing says you should be doing 
And that's where I feel the breakdown has happened. And then, look, I mean, this is this is not a new problem. This is a problem with philanthropy in, in general, right? Th- th- there isn't enough. We're not impact investing hasn't done enough to has hasn't done enough to bridge that divide or come up with enough solutions. Yeah, a- absolutely, and I think more to the or, or in addition to the other things that impact investing hasn't done enough of, it hasn't done enough to make the case that this is actually is a popular populist even platform that should ha- that could and should have popular support for all the re- for you know on all the fronts that we're that we're talking about that it should be bringing people into the economy raising their livelihoods b- bringing them better communities those those are things that you know any politician in any country should be you know that's a parade everybody should be jumping to be in front of right and impact investing is supposedly promising that and yet it gets marginalized as some kind of elite affectation, right? And that's a, that's a big problem because we need a popular movement for all this stuff, not a, you know, not an elite affectation. So is this is this the difference between it's not about uh, globalism versus nationalism, but maybe it's about inclusion versus exclusion and that perhaps some ways that some people feel that impact investing has been practiced has been Imogen to your point paternalistic or for, for, as an elite uh, affectation. Yeah, know. I mean, I think in part it has to do with uh, really bashing impact today. I think there is, there's an elitism to it, right? Like, who is the impact investing community really talking to, right? Like, how much of their time is spent, you know, hanging out at Davos or publishing well-meaning books on, you know, whatever Brian has on his bookshelf. Um, <laughs> and you know, the, the conference circuit and the sort of the MBA audience and, and that part of the impact community, which is important and how much of it is spent, you know, a lot of time is spent certainly by people sort of, you know, in the field, but it's not even just that, right? It's, it's reaching that audience that feels alienated by the very processes that impact is kind of trying to address. And, and that conversation isn't happening because a lot of those people, I don't know, like people, you know, we're talking about this with the opioid crisis a few months ago, or like, you know, people in like mining towns in West Virginia. Those are the people who are really feeling alienated. And it's unclear to me that impact is investing is having much of a dialogue in those communities. I I, I think you're right. And that's, I mean, I'm just vehemently agreeing with you in terms of the failure of the, at a sort of, you know, I don't mean to say marketing level, but just call it political level of making this case that there is a pro-growth, pro-people, pro-prosperity, pro-planet platform. Yeah, this is this is why I get so vehement about it because I basically think you know the world, call you know in its in its official form, you know in you know in the halcyon days of 2015, you know validated you know two or three you know three really, but agreements, right? The Paris Climate Agreement, you know, signed by every country virtually, and the Sustainable Development Goals, which we've talked a lot about on this. And, you know, every country at the UN signed on to these, you know, very ambitious goals. There is like a global platform, you know, and it yes, it has a bunch of corporate support too, and it has the G7 support, and you can declaim it as the establishment. So, but yes, the establishment circa 2015, it actually flipped to many of the issues and themes and prescriptions that, you know, impact, broadly speaking, has been pushing. And that was, and we had the kind of global consensus around, you know, tackling these issues of poverty and climate change and everything else. And, And if we let that get then lumped in with this, all the 
ills, as you very well pointed out, Imogen, of how the previous form of globalization left these people and, and communities behind, then we're sacrificing the very thing that we work so hard to get global consensus around. That should be the thing we're rallying behind and we're still pushing as the platform that we want to enact, you know, if we only were, you know, only had the power. And so we should be defending that. And yes, you know, broadening it, deepening it, making it more, you know, credible, real, enforceable, inclusive, all those things. But but that is the global platform now. And it's, you know, it's it's on the run, frankly, and we need to shore it up because what else, you know, what what's our alternative? Right. So, David, but how do we make impact investing a popular movement? Uh, you know, as as someone who you know runs a premium subscription only uh, newsletter that charges uh, a pretty hefty annual fee uh, for subscribers, we have a sale on. Oh, that's great. We have great. a summer sale on. That's great, uh, and uh, it's a great business model, uh, and and it's necessary for Impact Alpha uh, for its own sustainability. But again, we're not necessarily reaching the the millions of masses or, or mobilizing billions of people. So how how could and is it necessary for impact investing to become more of a popular movement and to Imogen, to your point, uh, that right now it seems to be something for the elite, almost a uh, you know a plaything for the idle rich to kind of dabble in. Is that is, <laughs> am I putting words in your mouth there? But that was what the... I like to call the rich kids of Impact Land. <laughs> kind of, well, this is based on what Instagram has the rich kids of Instagram, yeah. and you think that there's a hashtag like rich kids of Impact Land. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Um, so 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 how does it how does it break through how does how's that impact investing move beyond that kind of elite pedigree that it, it or that elite uh, uh, kind of branding that it has right now and how does it break through to a, a mass mobilization? <laughs> You're looking at me like I, I am. have, I have <laughs> the answer to that. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the the. the and I, I think that, you know, it's it's impact investing is not a political party. It's not a political movement, right? It, it's unfair to, to lay all the faults of the current global political zeitgeist at the feet of impact, right? And it, it's unfair to say that if only it did X, Y, and Z, then the world would be better. Like that is, that is, you know many, many parties, individuals, organizations, corporations, stakeholders are responsible for where we are. And impact investing is a good idea seeking to do a lot of good. So, you know, as much as, you know, I might be the grumpy curmudgeon, like, you know, it's done with love. Um, <laughs> the lovable you know. curmudgeon, we've always said. <laughs> that, exactly. That's what makes you the lovable curmudgeon. So, but, you know, by definition, impact investing is about investing, right? Therefore, it suggests that I have some ability, some capital to invest. You know, it was historically a movement that was about, came out of found, the foundations, it was about foundations and high net worth individuals, and in part, the relationship between governments and for-profit capital. Then, you know, institutional investors were added to the mix. So, you know, by definition, those are people with capital. They are part of a wealthy-ish elite. You can go down the ecosystem and you can say, okay, is there a way that, you know, individual retail investors, individuals can play a part in it? But then you get into a whole different conversation, right? So I think that you can't expect impact investing when it's a movement based on investing to be something that 
as as the the agents of change involves those people who don't have the capital capital to invest, which is the vast majority of people, right? Are there, however, other resources that the commu- impact community should be galvanizing, can partner with, can use better? Absolutely. So you know, civic action is obviously one, as is you know, consumers. I think that's right. I mean, the, just to back you up, I mean, Anthony Buglevine in this little roundup we had. Um, talked very directly, said, you know, the danger of globalism is that it's often results in practice in a form as a form of colonialism in which people from richer, whiter countries decide what is best for poorer, darker people. And many impact investors succumb to that danger because it's built into impact investing project itself, which privileges the owners of capital as the agents of change, which so to your point, it's to the point of to the extent it's a movement of investors, it's invariably going to be elitist and, and, and exclusive at some level. It, it privileges capitalism, right? And it 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 inbuilt it, into the, the, the impact investing project is this idea that capitalism is pretty much good. I mean, you can get into how foundations don't agree. But like, so there is this idea that that will be the better agent for change. So and it also, I mean, I think there's, there's a colonialism. And then there's also a refusal sort of the, the flip back of that is not looking enough at what is happening in your own backyard and spending you know so much of the project is sort of international in nature there is less focus on what is going on in local communities right so it's simultaneously both of those problems right so i don't think impact investing is ever you know impact investing is ever going to be you know broadly popular i mean i think to, to brian's point about the elitism of, of impact alpha itself i mean we're trying to move some capital and help capital understand what other capital is doing or however we can have our own impact, but we're not going to be the popular movement and impact investing is not going to be the popular movement. But I do think there is a popular movement to be had. And that to Brian's point, it's going to be, it's going to get popular if it can give people jobs, good jobs, raise their livelihood, raise their standard of living, help their kids, and therefore, the optimistic, expansive, and you mentioned it earlier, abundant opportunity in all of these fields that we see in, into which impact investors are investing because they see impact, they see opportunities. There's an optimistic, open nature to it that is a in big distinction to this xenophobic, closed op- opportunity. So I just want to keep that abundant, open opportunity, innovation direction, you know, vibrant and strong in the face of, you know, what are now seems to be relatively, you know, pretty strong countervailing forces and say, let's, you know, let's not forget that we're not, we don't actually have, I mean, this was, you know, we don't actually have the crisis that, that we're talking, you know, that we're talking about. We have the wherewithal to give everybody, you know, abundant, clean energy. We have the wherewithal to give everybody decent health care. You know, those are things that are incredibly you know, they're not expensive. They're huge opportunities for rebuilding, you know, all kinds of systems. I mean, it's, we keep saying it, the greatest wealth creation opportunity of a, you know, of, of a lifetime. I mean, let's not forget that it, that, that it's goodness out there and there's, and there's possibility that may be utopian, but I think actually the utopian is what we need right now to keep people's hope alive. Right. But I think just to build on that, yeah, there are these possibilities. And you said it's the greatest wealth uh, generation possibility of this lifetime, but it's wealth generation for whom, I think, is, is an open question. Right. And so it's it, it, you know, people who are doing impact investing are not necessarily uh, challenging 
the inherent power dynamics and systems in place, uh, they're still ma maintaining control over their investments. And even if it's uh, you know leading to more sustainable growth, they are still uh, maintaining their own uh, status and own. Uh, well, they do want uh, their returns. You know, it's true. They do want their returns. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with institutional investors wanting returns. Here's the bit that I struggle with and that I don't have good answers to, though. It's like, so you can say, you know, impact investing has made a massive strides over the past decade. And not, you know, not even just the sort of the narrow field of impact investing. Take, you know, some of the things we're talking about. Like, I don't know, green energy would be an example. Like, so, so if we've seen all of these or, you know, social finance bonds or innovations around improving social change, microfinance, if, if all of these things are making such great strides, if there is this sort of utopian opportunity out there, why has this popularism and this level of anxiety also manifest at the same time? Like the two are clearly more interrelated than we recognize. And I, there has to be, the solution has to be in somehow untying that knot. And I don't, that's the part I don't have good answers to. And that's sort of where David's enthusiasm loses me because I feel like it's not that simple. Well, no, it's not enthusiasm. At this point, it's kind of desperation. And we have to keep pushing out, <laughs> <laughs> we have to keep pushing out this optimistic, uh, you know, opportunity frame, you know, uh, around impact investing. And, and, and frankly, you know, the headlines makes it get tougher and tougher. So I'm just trying to reach for a kind of place to stand while, while, we, while we talk about all this stuff. Um, I, I do want to come back to the one thing that came through at the end, um, and it was, like I say, about people's own identities. And Clara Miller said, you know, after sort of disclaiming all kinds of absolutes, she said, there is one one that I will subscribe to, which is basically the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And maybe it's, you know, maybe it's as simple as what we were taught as in kindergarten. I like I, I like to sort of subscribing to the child of the 70s, you know, think local, act global. I mean, I think that there is still... A lot to be said for that, and maybe that is part of it. Just coming. Wasn't it think global, act local? That's what I said, didn't I? Not? Like in the wrong way around. You said. <laughs> You're a globalist. <laughs> You're a globalist. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thank you, David Bank. Thank you. And thank you, Imogen Rose Smith. Thank you. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights. For those elites who are working to build an inclusive and prosperous future, discover more <laughs> at impactalpha.com. <laughs> oh, you're, you're, you're listening to the outro there, David. That was for you. Uh, from New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks so much for listening to Returns on Investment. We look forward to speaking with you soon. Bye.